And this is part two of studying the word, looking to Jesus, and perfecting our faith. We started this last Sunday morning, kind of a New Year's theme. I want to finish with this text. Reading from Hebrews eleven thirty nine to 12, 2. So here in the sanctuary, at home, wherever you are, get your Bible out. Hebrews eleven thirty nine to 12, 2. And all these, the these are, you go back to Hebrews 11 and you read this list of people and their faith, the earmarks of their faith in God. So when he talks about these, that's who he's talking about. Those people whom he's just described in Hebrews 11. All these, though commended through their faith, here's the interesting things, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. This is what we took a long time with last week. I'm not going to redo it. That God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And I, I, I spent about 20 minutes last Sunday talking about the way this, it, it should read, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had something better for them. That's what I would have written. And he doesn't. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I'm not going to unpack all of that introductory again. I did it pretty much at length last Sunday, and that's, that's online. So last Sunday after that, we looked at Noah in verse 7. We looked at Abraham in verse 8. And we looked at Sarah in verse 11, studying these people in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's finish the list. And then we'll look at two other ideas that I want to bring out of this passage. Uh, let's just pray. In Psalm 119.36, David prays, Incline my heart to your word and not to worthless gain. Incline my heart to your word. It's not something David did. It's something he asks God to do. Incline my heart to your word and not to worthless gain. And, and so we see that our hearts, here we are, gathering around your word. We aren't wired right to treasure your word. What we naturally treasure is the material side of life. All of us, we can dive into that stuff. And that's a problem. Because without your help, we're going to look at the words of this passage, but our hearts won't lean into them. We, we won't cherish them. We won't treasure them. We can't. So it's, it's no small deal when we pray together, Lord, by your Spirit, 
Incline my heart to your word. Say it with me, church. Incline my heart to your word. Again, incline my heart to your word. You have to do that or we're lost. And so come, Holy Spirit, and do that work. Work that miracle in all of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Joseph, verse 22. Let's look at him. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. I love this. Gave directions concerning his bones. So long ago, long before Joseph was on the scene, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be taken into Egyptian captivity for about 400 years. And somehow, we're not told how, Joseph knew about that promise. Nothing has happened during young Joseph's entire life that even hinted at the possibility of that promise being fulfilled. It was just bondage. It was just captivity. That is all Joseph saw. I mean, he did okay, but that's all he saw for his people. And now he's old. He's facing death, and the yoke of captivity is as firmly in place as it has ever been. No light at the end of the tunnel. God's word wasn't working. God's, God's promised deliverance wasn't there. And he's thinking about his death. God's promise wasn't happening for Joseph. You ever feel like that? You, you, you read, and you see something, and you think, well, that's, that's great that that worked for Paul and Peter and James and John. My life's a mess. Remember Joseph. In the face of certain death, he continued to believe that nothing would thwart the delivering plan and love of God. He knew that his not being around to see it happen didn't diminish God's power, provision, and promise. God's plan was not going to be thwarted by Joseph's death. Not one bit. Nothing seems to shut out God's promised future like death. If there's anything we know about death, it's that's just the big period, isn't it? Boom. The end. There's... There's something beautiful in Joseph. Egyptian bondage is as stern as it ever has been. 
He's about to die. All he has is a promise plus nothing. And there's something, God bless this man's heart. There's something in Joseph that says, by the way, when God delivers us, get my bones, put them in a box, and take me with you. Joseph's death was not the end. Somehow he senses that. Oh, it's not full-blown theology at this point yet. But here's what he does know. My death is not the end of God's work. I'm reminded of Paul's great words. Maybe you need to carry these around for a little while. Maybe you're just feeling kind of frayed and worn out just a little bit with everything right now. Put that verse up, would you? Romans 8, 38, 39. Maybe we all need to read this out loud. What do you think? Let's read this. Aloud so people at home can hear you with your mask on, okay? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And in the middle of that, note that word death. That's what Joseph is just getting a bit of a picture of. It's developed more fully in that verse. Death doesn't separate us from Jesus Christ. It can't, Paul says. It is impossible. In a world where it looks as though death changes everything, in terms of God's plan, God's promise, God's power, changes nothing. Changes nothing. So Joseph's command about taking his bones when they leave Egypt, it's given to remind me that the truth of God's promise isn't going to be hindered by my death or your death or the death of our loved ones, our passing on has no effect on the truth of God's promise, his word, and his ability to keep it. None of that changes. We are in on God's future plan for the ages. Remember Joseph. He died not seeing God's promised deliverance. So did my mom. So did my dad. Jesus hadn't come back yet. The bodies are still in the grave. That's Joseph. He dies not seeing the deliverance, but confident in the deliverance. We need Joseph. Moses. Let's look at Moses, 24 to 27. By faith... Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, choosing rather, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
If I look more to this world for reward than the next, I won't make it to the finish line. God's keeping power never becomes precious for those who set their hearts on the pleasures of this world. God's God's keeping, sustaining, purifying power is deeply manifested in lives that are obsessed with the reward of coming glory. And I chose that word obsessed. It's not in the text. I chose it very deliberately. Because all Christians, as far as I know, all Christians believe in some form of future reward. That's way too weak. Way too weak. I'm not talking about what your belief is. Obsessed. Obsessed means, I can't get this out of my head. That's what obsession is, right? I cannot get this out of my head. It means that unseen, long-term reward of following Christ. It means it's the first thought in my head when I rise in the morning. It means that obsession with eternity and eternal reward and the presence of Christ. It means it's the last thought that I cherish before drifting off to sleep. I can't get it out of my head. This is what I'm all about. Moses. He is an obsessed person with God's promise. There's Egypt. There's all the treasures at his disposal. There's also the suffering for following God, Christ. But he's so obsessed with a different reward that he chooses that. He did it every day. He is one who is an obsessed follower of God's promise. He is one who refused to be seduced or distracted by the visible, touchable, material world around him. Remember Moses. Moses, that's what you call an unkidnapped heart. He shows what it takes to trust the promise of God. All right, so there's the people. Last Sunday, this Sunday. There's some of the lists we studied. I want to move on to a a second point of instruction from this text. Point number two. You can see these words right there. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin. The part I want to get at is the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Different translations, but this idea will be in all of them. The sin which clings so closely. That's anything that keeps you from, from trusting flat out in Christ, following him. It doesn't have to be something really wicked in itself. The idea here is anything, anything becomes dangerously sinful when it diminishes my spiritual appetite for Christ. That is, it just, it just draws a big chunk of me 
into something other than Christ. It's what I prayed. Incline, incline my heart to your word. Because you know where my heart goes, Lord. If you don't perform this miracle, here's where my heart goes. Here's where your heart goes. Every one of you right now, here's where your heart goes naturally. Worthless gain. Worthless gain. And so, the sin which clings so closely, it's just the things that reduce spiritual stamina, the things that draw out energy that should be put into Christ. We can't do everything. What are you going to give your best energy to? The sins which cling so closely, I want to say something else about them. They don't make the list of the greatest sins. But they are. The sins that cling so closely are perhaps the hardest to deal with because because it's those sins that it's hardest for us to really see them as sinful. Because the sins that cling so closely are sins that I've probably already redefined as just my nature or temperament. The sins that cling so closely are the sins that have now become a part of me so that to, to deal with them honestly in the light of God's word feels like destroying something that has become precious. Do you see what I'm saying there? It's, it's, there are sins that have become a part of my identity. I've justified them for a long time. I've ignored what God has said about them for a long time so that now they feel the sins that cling so closely feel like a necessary part of my existence. How will I lay them aside? The only way those kind of sins come out is like when a dentist rips out an abscessed tooth. That, that's what it feels like when those sins have to be laid aside. They're, they're, they've become a part of me. We can easily label them just as goals, aspirations, identities. They've become part of the natural environment of our whole culture. They're the things everyone does. They're the things no one can live without. They're also the things no one can even condemn without being called legalistic or intolerant. They, 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 they suck life out of us. So, all of those things, 12.1, they have to be laid aside. That New Testament call, it just seems totally foreign to North American evangelical Christianity. Laying aside, that, that's the call to that's the call to sacrifice other, even legitimate things that consume the time and energy and the resources of the cause of Christ. Note the verbs, lay aside. These parts of my life are too precious just to fall off. Fall came, eh? The season came. I see people out there raking their lawns. Tell you what you don't have to do. You don't have to rake the leaves off the tree. Because the leaves on the tree 
just fall off, right? So these sins in Don Horbin's life are not going to just drop off. These will have to be ripped out. There will be a cost. Nothing automatic. You and I can't race after Christ without sacrificing many things that feel precious. And they, and they feel precious only because we haven't yet seen Jesus as glorious as he truly is. When we see Jesus in all his glory, there will come a time, not now, there will come a time when all those sins will come off my life. I get that right here. Beloved, 1 John 3, 2 and 3. We are God's children now. And you can see what he's doing. He's brilliant writing. He's comparing this now, where we are now, and the part that is not yet. Okay, He's comparing two different seasons. So we are God's children now. That devotional that I read, preciously true. What we will be, well... We haven't seen that yet. But we know that here's, here's what's going to happen. When he appears, what's he talking about there? Second coming, we're agreed. When he appears, finally, you're not going to believe what a wonderful person I'm going to be when Jesus comes back. I wouldn't dare say this if the word didn't say it. When he appears, we shall be, think of this, like him. I'm going to be like Jesus. Because, okay, what's going to bring this change? We're not there yet. Now, these sins don't just fall off. Right now, I have to lay them aside. Lay down things that feel naturally precious to me. But I can't afford to keep going like that. And I'm supposed to be thinking about another day when Jesus comes I will be like him because, here's the reason, we shall see him as he is. Oh, I try to do that. We have courses, right? We sing songs. We try and imagine. We picture what Jesus is like. It's not a bad thing, but it, it can get a little bit, uh, a bit of a mental gymnastics thing. The truth is, none of us knows how glorious Jesus really is. But, but a day will come when I will see Jesus as he is. And here's what everyone in this room is going to do. I will too. Here's what we're all going to do. When we see Jesus when he comes, we're all going to go, how could I have been so stupid? That's the first thing we're going to think. How could I, how could I have lived for the things I live for? How could I have done it? Look at him. That's not where we are right now. Right now, it takes a lot more effort to lay aside precious feeling sins. Right now, it takes great faith. Trust that our Lord's commands are true even when we don't feel the full blessing of them. That's what the Bible means when it talks about the fight of faith. So our text says, I am called, we are called, not just to like Jesus a lot, not just to admire him with fondness. We are called to run toward him as the chief goal and object of our life here on earth. 
And this cloud of witnesses, witnesses to what genuine faith is all about, like Moses, look at that. See that you don't let anything turn you from the business at hand. Look at these verses. Hebrews 10, 32 to 36. I have a few texts I want to just look at quickly as we wrap up. Hebrews 10, 32 to 36. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, this is their salvation, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. That's interesting. I want to talk to you about that. 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. And you, look at this, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. They're thinking of the reward and an abiding one. So here's what this text is about. There are people who were following Christ and they weren't all treated exactly the same. Some people were following Christ and they suffered extreme persecution for coming to Christ. And in fact, here's what they were put into. They were put into prison. All right. So, so some of the Christians were put into prison, and there are other Christians. What do they do? What do they do when these fellow believers are put into prison? Well, if they just leave them alone, then they won't be persecuted because no one's even going to know where they stand. But they didn't do that. These Christians heard about their brothers and sisters put in prison. And even though they knew that if they went to visit them, they would lose their homes and their property, even though they knew that was coming, they still went showing solidarity with their brothers and sisters who were put into prison. What would make them go and visit those people when they knew they were going to lose their homes and their property? Well, they were looking to a reward. See? Faith. Faith. Joseph, take my bones. We're going out of here. Moses endures all the, the, the persecution and suffering, leaving Egypt. Recall the former days when you were once drawn to Jesus. Jump to another text. I'm messing it up for the guys in the control room. I'm going to Hebrews chapter 3, okay? So it's a couple texts down. Hebrews 3, 17 to 4, 1. Look at these words. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So what? there's that story. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, let us fear lest any of you 
should seem to have failed to reach it. Here's the same idea, sorry. Here's the same idea, Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, laying aside all sin. Same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So here we are in the middle of this crazy COVID pandemic. And it's a long stretch. Nigh on to what? A couple years? Since life has even felt normal. There's all sorts of burdens. That this is what, this is what we don't want to have happen to us. Sluggishness. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's what we're doing. That's what we're looking at with these people. Remember the witnesses who have gone before. That's what their example is all about. Relate their experience to your own life. Look at your life passing by. You only get one chance at life on this earth. Don't waste it. Don't get sidetracked. The church desperately needs that reminder today. Last point. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want to talk to you about this part, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. And the part I want to stress is the race that is set before us. It's set before us. A a course that's, it's like it's marked out. So Jesus has gone this way before. That's what that Hebrews 12, 2 is all about. Looking, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So above all, remember Jesus. He has marked out the lanes for this race. He has given us ample provision for growth. The resources are there. He has established a course for the perfecting of your faith far into a year that none of us can even see yet. You don't don't travel alone. He's, the course has been set. He is the founder and perfecter. Old King James, author, finisher, same idea. He doesn't just, Jesus doesn't just start things. He perfects things. Follow him in the race. Stay in the lane. Don't make your own rules for life. He knows what will work for your life and what won't. He knows what's best. Look to Jesus. 
tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He's a sympathetic high priest. He knows what we face, what we go through. So there you have those people in Hebrews 11. I, last week I finished this way and I'm doing it again. The word is a lamp unto my feet, light to my pathway. Incline my heart to your word, not to worthless gain. It's the difference between, remember, a map and GPS. GPS, you just type in your address. It's kind of slick. Then you don't have to think about it anymore. A map isn't automatic. The word is more like a map than GPS. If you want guidance for your life. But the map, you have to take out and you actually have to read it. Study it. Mark out the route. Pay attention to it. That's, that's how you use a text like that. The whole Hebrews 11, 12. You, you study it. And so, Lord, we come into this year. And the one thing we do have confidence in is you. You are the great shepherd of the church. We want to be people who lay aside the things, lay aside the things now that when we see you face to face will look absolutely ridiculous and worthless. Give us wisdom to see it now. Help us to finish the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus. For his glory alone we pray. And maybe what we need to do, all of us, we just search our hearts right now. What is it? The sin that clings so closely. Pride. Ambition. Covetousness. Lust, anger, meanness, dishonesty, lying, selfishness, greed. These don't just fall off. As we listen to your Holy Spirit, we we lay aside the things that cling so closely. Thank you that there is grace greater than all our sins, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise your name. We place... Our church, Cedarview Community Church, we just place it freshly. At the beginning of this year, we place it freshly in your hands until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Amen.